Well, the secret, the secret this morning is the fact that we are still not going to talk about the secret this morning because it's later in Paul's letter. And so the secret is that the secret is going to be, I believe it's next week. So the secret, this is our series that we've been working through. Actually, we've been working through a book study of Colossians for the last four weeks. This is the fourth week of that book study. So we have another five weeks to go. I know some of you, can we be honest? Those of you who are from California, you've probably never committed to anything for nine weeks in your life. Am I right? Perhaps I am right. So hopefully for some of you, you've committed to nine weeks. Actually, I'm joking. Many of you have committed to the nine weeks for us to study this book of Colossians and to learn a little bit about how God wrote his word, how he inspired men to write his word so that we can understand more deeply the Bible. So here's the secret. This is not the secret actually that we're doing. This is a book and I don't necessarily recommend it because you're just going to, the secret is you're just going to make the author of this book wealthy. The secret of this book is that if you buy a lot of books, believing that one day you'll be wealthy, you're just going to make this guy wealthy. So that's not really the goal, but the secret What is the secret that Paul talks about? Paul is writing his letter to the church in Colossae, and he has a secret to tell them about what it means to be a believer in Christ. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it means for us to understand and accept the challenge that Paul deals with in this letter to Colossae. Now, here's the thing. We are doing a nine-week series study of Colossians, and all of you want to take out your Mad Libs now. If you have it in your bulletin, you can do that. You'll see that your Mad Libs, for those of you that have been here, is still in the bulletin, and I have finished filling out the words for the last couple of weeks. So if you didn't bring your papers from last couple of weeks or you weren't here last week, you have the words there. And so you actually start having a couple of sentences here, and you can actually read down through the first half of your Mad Libs. I realize also this week that, duh, Last week, I was supposed to cover one more sentence, and I missed that sentence. However, the topic of that sentence is a prelude to what we're going to do today, so it worked out fine. So we're actually going to cover a lot this morning, and we're going to have to cover it quickly. So I'm going to try to just rocket through this, Um, but that's the Mad Lib. You can go ahead and fill in on side A and side B. If you weren't here, you'll figure it out. It's not rocket science. If you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. So here's our strategy. Our strategy is this, is that we are trying to build a house. That's what we're doing here. We are not just simply looking at some details about the book of Colossians and speaking about those, but instead, what I want to do is teach you how Paul wrote his letters, how he constructed them so that we can see and we can apply this this knowledge that we have to the rest of the letters in the Bible, understand how they're put together. A lot of times we approach the letters as being just simply letters that Paul wrote, and so we just pick it up anywhere in there that we want, but we sort of miss the idea that Paul is trying to accomplish. The reason why is we talked about this the first week when we cleared the ground, and we talked about the fact that really what Paul's doing, instead of writing a letter, he's not writing an email like, hey, I was able to pick up the supplies, Pastor Douglas, and hit sin. That's not what he did. Instead, what he did was he created a strategic argument whereby it would be able to be read over and over and over again and be able to be discussed and chewed on. And of course, the Holy Spirit inspired it to make sure it was that way. So what Paul was writing was something that was much more deeper and much more detailed and much more specific and much more, well, concrete than when we use the word letter today. In fact, it was really not a letter 
Um, it was only framed as if it were a letter. It was because it has a, hey, how are you? And see you later, Paul. And of course, it was sent as a letter. But inside of it, it's really an argument to try to get the Colossians to see what God wants them to see. So the first week we did what? So actually, let me just say another one more thing. So what we want to do is we want to pull down the the wallpaper, we want to pull down the sheetrock, and we want to see how Paul constructed his letter. So the first week we did what? We cleared the ground. We could even look at our Mad Lib here, and Paul says what in the first week? Hey, everybody, how's it going? How's everybody doing? I'm Paul. I'm in prison, but you're in Colossae, and what? You're believers now. So basically, to construct the house, he clears the ground, makes it ready for building by saying, you're believers now, and you're growing Therefore, this is our starting place. This is where we're going to start from. If you're not a believer in Christ, then this will not have any meaning for you. But if you are a believer in Christ, this is, this is where we start from. We're starting from this point. How do we move forward in our relationship with God? In fact, what do we need to do at this point now that we're believers? In the second week, we talked about getting the vision. Once we cleared the ground, we're going to look very carefully at the plans. We're going to look very carefully at the plans and figure out how we're going to build this house. And so what he says is, Paul says, I'm praying for you that you will learn more about God so that you can honor God with your lives now that you are his kids. So Paul's saying, listen, this is the plan. The plan that we have now, now that we're believers, is that we want to honor God with our lives. How can we honor God with our lives? Well, we must do what? We must understand God. We cannot honor him if we don't understand him. We cannot love him if we don't understand what he wants as love. This is a common problem for those of us who are married. We encounter at some point in our marriage, which is what? We try to love the other person the way we want to be loved, but the other person needs to be loved, our spouse needs to be loved the way that they want to be loved. And so it's the same way in any relationship. If you want to show love to someone, then you do it the way they want to. I can, I'll tell you what, I can show love to my wife by playing video games all day long, but is that showing love? Only in my mind right? Only in my mind is that showing love. And so if we want to show love to God, we need to know what God wants in return. We need to understand. By the way, God understands us because his way of showing us love is to do what? To heal us, to make us better, to make us whole again. That's a great act of love there. So we, second week, we got the vision, which is what? We want to honor God with our lives. We cleared the ground. Our vision is we need to build a house. We need to build a life that will honor God with our lives. And last week, we laid the foundation. I still don't know what the words is, but I found plenty of pictures of it on the internet. Basically, what you do is you, when you, before you're going to pour the concrete, you put up these wood things, and you've got all the, the, the underlayment stuff, and you've got the... Uh, what do you call those? There's rebars going all throughout the project, and it's ready. It's like a box. You build a box with which you're going to pour the concrete in. And so that's what we did last week. We laid the first part of the foundation. If that foundation gets messed up, then the whole house is going to be messed up. The formwork, that's what we did last week. If the formwork is messed up, if the formwork, you're missing a side or you, you got some rebar out of place or whatever, then the whole house is going to be wonky. The whole house is going to be useless. So last week we talked about laying the foundation, which was this. In order to glorify God, in order to do this, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is God, the supreme being, as well as the supreme church member. So we talked about last week that the form of, of the whole foundation that we're going to build our whole life is that what? Jesus is God. He is God in flesh. And he is the supreme being and also supreme over the church. And why is that the foundation that we're going to be building on? Why is that the beginning of the foundation? Well, because if we don't understand God and we don't know God and we don't have the right God, which was one of the problems in Colossae, it's impossible for us to build the house. Look, 
my son and I can decide we're going to build a house, and as the foundation, we're going to use Play-Doh. We're just going to get a bunch of Play-Doh, go down to Walmart, and just buy a ton of Play-Doh and put it in there, but is it going to be a good foundation for our house? No. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, if you worship Jesus one day and Zeus the next day and Minerva the next day, like a lot of the people in Colossae wanted to do, you're not going to have a solid foundation for your house. The foundation for your house has to be Jesus, has to be God in flesh, has to be Jesus, the Son of God who came and died on the cross for our sins. Now, this week we're going to do what? Today, we're going to lay the foundation, part two. We're going to pour the concrete in the form work. We're going to pour the concrete in the form work, and this is going to be the foundation for what we do. Last week was the most important part, but this is almost as critical. This is the second part of the foundation. Here we go. This is actually what we're doing right here. So here's the form work that I was talking about. I should have put a, put a picture of the, without the semen in there, too. But and here's the concrete. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to pour it, and then when we get done today, we're going to have the whole foundation for this book. Now, here's what we're going to do. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. Yes, we are on week 4 out of 9, and we are still in Colossians 1 at the beginning. But it's because this is where Paul puts all the meat. He puts all the arguments and all the explanations here at the front so that we would be able to understand what he's going to talk about later. That's why I'm saying that it's okay to flip open to your Bible and pick like Colossians 4, 1 and just start reading from there. You can do that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you understand the argument that Paul's trying to make, it will bring Colossians 4 alive because Colossians 4 is the wallpaper and we're doing the concrete right now. All right, Colossians 1, 21 through 23, very short passage, very short passage, but very important. Uh, so if you want to open up your Bibles, you're welcome to do it. It'll be up on the Jumbotron as well. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. All right, let's see what the Bible says here. Paul writes this, by the way, you may not realize it, but just uh, so that we're, we have some continuity. Last week, we looked at this idea, this poetic statement by Paul that, where he says that Jesus is God. And in some of your Bibles, it's actually set apart from the rest of the text because it's, some people consider it to be an early hymn of the church. So some of you have that part written off as um, poetry. It's formatted differently in your Bibles. Some of you have that. Who has a Bible that's format where Colossians 1, 15 through 21 is formatted differently. Anybody have that, some of you? Some of you have that in your Bibles? Okay, so what happens is, is that Paul actually says, he has, a, in the original language, he has a tag that connects 21 through 23 with that hymn. In other words, he says, Here, here's, the, here's, here's how God is so important, and he is the God, and now here's what we're going to talk about, because here is the result of that. So it's almost like an equal sign or a result of, and here's what he said. All this... So we translate in English this, but it means he's referring to the above passage. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separate. Now he's talking about who here? Is he talking about pagans? Is he talking about Zeus worshipers? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christians. He's talking about people who are in the church of Colossae. Now don't miss that because it's important. He's talking to you. He's not talking to people out there on the street. He's talking to you. This includes you, me and you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. But I'm a nice person, right? Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in Christ's physical body. 
As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault at all. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So this is where he wraps up the foundation also in the end, because there's a book in where he says, and this is what God has asked me to tell you. This is the foundation. Okay, so let's dig into it um, and look at this here this morning. A couple ideas, actually four ideas we're going to talk about. Number one, and this reference is actually starting in verse 20, where we're going to pick up from last week. He made peace between God and the whole world. Christ made peace between God and the whole world. Now, some of you, we're going to talk about this in a second, may feel that this is a little bit unusual because we don't think of Christ as bringing peace to the world. We do at Christmas time because we say peace on earth and goodwill to men. But when we understand the role that Christ had is was to bring peace to the whole world between God and the world. Actually, let me just read verse 20 here so that we're clear with that too. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So what Paul is saying here is that, listen, when we talk about this reconciliation that has occurred between God and man, that it has occurred because of what Christ did. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how Paul is building and we build as the foundation of our lives everything, in fact, this is the form work that we talked about at the beginning of last week, that everything is built on the person and work of Jesus Christ that it is the person and work of Jesus Christ that defines who we are. It is the parameters, if you will, of our lives. This person and work of Jesus Christ is what makes us who we are. We cannot be with Christ, we cannot be Christians, we cannot be godly people without that form work that is built because of what Christ has done. Everything that we are and everything that we owe to God is based on what Christ has done. Now, let me give you an example, because a lot of times people in our society, especially out here in the western part of the United States, creation is a big idea. And by the way, I mean creation. I don't mean like creationism. I mean just the idea of the earth and the sky and the planet. You know, there are a lot of people out here that are very involved in the environment. And the environment is one of those areas, the, 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 the rocks, the, the, the hiking trails, the rivers, the streams, the fishing, all those kind of things that we can do, that's all part and parcel of what God has done. And it's good, you know, it's exciting that we have beautiful trees and we have beautiful lakes and we can go swimming in and go hiking in. But those things do not bring one to be reconciled with God. No amount of loving the trees and hugging the trees and no amount of swimming in the lakes and no amount of sitting on top of the mountain, none of those things will actually bring us closer to God. The one thing that actually brings us closer to God is the work of Jesus Christ. That is not sufficient for us to simply know the mountains and the streams, but we must know Christ as well. Now, let's dig into this a little deeper, because Paul, Paul's emphasis here is on Christ and people. In fact, it's not as apparent in the English, but one of the things that's funny about the, you know one of the things that's funny about the original language here in English? In English, our language is very organized, because generally we start with the subject of the sentence, and then we have the verb, and then we have everything else. Is it the same way in other languages? What about, no, Chinese, no, right? Is, do you have a certain order in Chinese, or do you go in any order you want? Spanish has order, but some of them, some of them French, English, you know, all the Romance languages, they have a certain order. All the ones de- derived from Latin have a certain order. But Greek, by the way, has really no order. So you can start with whatever word in the sentence you want to, largely, largely, so to speak. 
And so what Paul does, he starts all these sentences with the, the pronouns, meaning the people he's talking about and the people he's talking for and the people he's talking to, to provide emphasis. So well, here's one of the emphasis points that Paul's making. Paul's emphasis here is on Christ and people. So what he says is, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Through him, God reconciled everything to himself. So the Greek actually has through him to himself everything up front. Why? Because it wants us to understand that the emphasis is on what Christ has done for us, for people. Because of what Christ has done for us, that's really what the key is. Now, here's an interesting thing. The interesting thing is that when he talks about this, is that he's saying, listen, this is Christ's gift to people. This is what Christ has done for us. This is something that is not where we are secondary, but Christ's whole sacrifice is to make us right with God. Christ didn't come to earth to, to do it because he just was bored in heaven. He didn't come to do it because he didn't have anything else better to do. He had a free Saturday, so he thought he'd pencil in a couple of years here on earth to go ahead and do something cool. He, he wasn't just coming down here and slumming with us people. No, what he was doing is he was doing something very specific to save people, to allow people to be free. People meaning who? Does it mean us? Yes, it means us. Does it mean the people that were walking and talking and breathing and doing stuff when Christ walked the earth? Yes. Does it also mean people who were born before Christ? Yes. It means anyone who has ever been born in this world, Christ's one sacrifice is good enough for. So it doesn't matter when the person was born, where they lived, what race, what nationality, you know, what socioeconomic class they, they were involved in. Everyone, the entire world, is reconciled to Christ by that one act. That's the beauty of it, because it's not a successive thing where God needed to do lots of different things. God, in his infinite wisdom, created a system, and we'll talk about a system in a minute, created a system where you and I are forever set free from all the mistakes we've ever made by one single solitary act of the Son, Jesus Christ, which makes it simple. You know, a lot of religions have a lot of what we call rituals. A lot of religions, you got to jump through a lot of hoops. How many of you like jumping through hoops? I love it. You know, I love going down to, who should I pick on? Any government bureaucracy. How about that? I love going down to government bureaucracies and standing in line A, then having to be standing in line C, then standing in line Z and fill out paperwork, C, Z, and X in triplicate and turn it in. Don't you love that? How many of you love that? I love that. Nothing makes me more happy than to stand in lots of lines and talk to lots of people and explain my story over and over and over and over again. I love it. I love it. I love it. There's one particular bureaucracy that many of you love the way I love that I can't seem to get anything from them. I'm just totally driving illegally right now because I can't get anything from them. And no matter how many lines I stand in, will they, well, they won't fix it. And so I'm not illegal, but I just don't have any paperwork to show that I'm legal and they won't send it to me. That makes me happy, right? That's something I love to do. No, I hate it. I hate it. And God knows that we would hate having to stand in line and jump through hoops just to be right with God. That's silly and ridiculous. But a lot of religions, a lot of philosophies, you have to do that. By the way, one of the bigger philosophies and one of the bigger issues that Paul was dealing with, remember in Colossae that there wasn't any one thing. That's, that's a mistake we read. And a lot of times, some of the more inferior commentaries, if you pick it up in Berean or somewhere, will tell you that the Colossians all believed X. 
and that the problem that Paul was talking about was X problem. No, Colossae had lots of problems. There were lots of people. It was very cosmopolitan. Some people were believers of Zeus. Some of them were followers of Plato. Some of them were Jewish. Some of them were quasi-Jewish. Actually, most of them were quasi-Jewish. A lot of them were quasi-Jewish, which means they had some legalistic uh, uh, interest in the Old Testament, but it was only peripheral. You know, it was kind of a secondary thing. Uh, some of them were, uh, f- uh, other, followed other philosophers. Some of them followed other gods. I mean, some of them were just what we call animistic, which means they just believed in spirits or in their language, they would call them demons, demons not being in a negative sense, just meeting spirit beings that mess with you. Wouldn't it be crazy to live a life? Listen, check this out. Colossae, a lot of people believed in demons. And, and again, we don't mean demons the way the church means it, but in the Greek sense, demons were these spirit beings that like when you fix a cup of coffee in the morning, you put it on the counter and you go back, the cup of coffee's gone, you know, or half drunk or, or not, it's not there. And it, oh, that demon took my coffee. Wouldn't it be weird to live like that and to believe that? They did. They did. Christ here, his emphasis is on there's no hoop jumping necessary to follow God. That all those spirit beings and philosophies and all this rigmarole, that's made up by people. God's simple plan was that Christ would come and die in his physical body so that when he rose again on the third day, that his blood shed for us would set us right with God. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no weathers or warehouse or any other thing. It's just simply you committing to God. That is what sets us free. By the way, the emphasis is on Christ's physical body um, dying. Do you know why Paul emphasizes that? Well, because a lot of people thought that maybe Christ would just be sort of a spirit or that he was a demigod or that he was some other being other than a man. But Paul wants to say, listen, no, Christ as man and as God in flesh, that he died and his physical body did in fact die and he rose again on the third day because of the power of God. So it's not just simply that some demigod came down to the earth and had his fun and jollies and you know, made up this whole play and, you know, of, of dying, but he didn't really die because no God would suffer. And this brings up a point that a lot of the people in Colossae could not imagine that a God would suffer. By the way, and again, I know this is a little, a little more detailed than perhaps we're used to, but what was one of the big gods in general in the ancient world at that time? One of, the, uh, one of the more popular gods was a guy named Dionysius, who did what? He was the god of what? Anybody know what he's the god of? Partying. He was a big god at that time. So a lot of people worship Dionysius. You know why? Party is how you worship him. Seriously, you went and partied. You went, you got drunk, and you did a bunch of other things like that, and that's how you worship that god. I mean, this is oversimplification, but it's pretty much where it's at. And so this idea that Dionysius was all about partying, hey, let's go worship at the temple, all right. Go get a six-pack, and I'll meet you there. Yeah, that's, that's what they believed. And yet, in contrast to that, Christ did what? Christ died. He sacrificed himself a miserable, physical death. <laughs> Why would you believe in a God who died? That's no fun. Let's believe in the God of vodka. Let's believe in the God of Michelob light. I mean, that sounds a lot better, right? But to the average person that was there that day, they couldn't believe that a God would come and die for us. Paul's emphasis is on Christ and people. 
And so we see that his death and his, reconcil- and, his, and his resurrection reconciles us with God and makes us right. You know, God reached down and extends our hand to us and says, listen, I want you to be made right. I want you to be made whole. I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be a sacrifice for you. You just simply have to believe. There's no hoop jumping. There's no other issue. You just have to make a commitment to follow God. That's what it is. I know that there's party gods. I know there's other gods. I know there's philosophies. I know there's all these things. You know what? You can spend all your life jumping through hoops and and drinking down at the temple, but it's not going to change your life like Christ is going to change your life. Why? Because they don't have the power to do it. Let's talk about this in a second. See, here's the problem. We all started out as enemies of God. Now, who's the we all here? Charles Manson and... Jeff, was it Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy? Did they start out enemies of God? Guess who else started out enemies of God? Billy Graham started out enemies of God. The Pope started, yes, the Pope started out enemies of God. Everyone, you, me, we all started out life enemies of God. No, I'm not going to be hit by lightning. Don't worry. Because the Bible here says clearly that we all started out as enemies of God. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. The Bible says we were evil? Oh my goodness, no, that's not true. I'm a nice person. You started out enemies of God. Listen, every single person that was ever born into our world has done what? Mm, I am not going to do what God says. I am not going to do what God says. Bridget, who is two... When she doesn't like what Wyatt does, she knows how to say no, Wyatt. That was one of the first words she learned. And she also learned to do this. She does this all the time. No, Wyatt, no, Wyatt, no, Wyatt, like this. She learned to do, I don't know where she got this from, but she, that fist goes up. She's no, Wyatt, no, Wyatt, no, Wyatt. We all learn to do that. I mean, she's not even, she learned that before she even turned two. How to do that. And we, in our DNA, in our physical flesh programming, because we start out life in opposition and rebellion to God, we have the ability and we choose to exercise it from the very beginning of our lives to say, no, God, we're going to do what we want. How many of you have ever said to your parents, no, I'm not going to do that? All of us. Every single person who's ever been born in this world has at some point or time told their parents, no, we're not going to do that. How much more then do we tell God, no, we're not going to do that? But the problem is, is that in our world, there's a myth that we are basically okay. And this, this comes to the problem, because a lie of our world is that we'll be okay with God. You know, a lot of people, when you talk to them and you share Christ with them, or you talk to them about what Jesus did, they'll say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to worry about religion right now. Because I believe that when I get to heaven, I'll be good enough, basically, and God and I will work it out then. That's great, except that um, God said clearly that that's not what's going to happen. Again, think about your children, for those of you who have children. Your children, a lot of times, if you know them, uh, especially when they're younger, perhaps when they're older too, they will negotiate with you, right? They'll say, you say, okay, you didn't clean up your room, so you're going to get this and that as a punishment. And what do they say? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll take that punishment. Or what do they do? 
They're like, no, but what if I, can I do this? You know, they try to work their way out of it and negotiate their way out of it. Now, as parents, a lot of times we're a little wimpy and we give in, hopefully not too often, but we give in and we're like, okay, I guess maybe. But, you know, God has already set it up the standard before we are ever born that this is the way it's going to be. That when we were born into the world, that we were born into the world as enemies of God. Why? Because of our brokenness. Because from the get-go, we have told our parents no. We've told God no. We've told everyone no. We're just like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to act that way. That creates a rebellion in us that causes us to be enemies of God. Now, some of you may say, well, pastor, here's the problem. The problem is just because I told my parents no one time doesn't mean I'm an enemy of them. Well, it's true. It doesn't mean you are an enemy of them. But what it does mean is that you are not perfect in your relationship with them also. What that means is is that you have not fulfilled all the things that they have asked you to do. Why? Because you've rebelled against them at some point in time in your life. And most of us have rebelled against our parents how often? A lot. How many of us just told our parents only one time in our lives, no, we're not going to do that? How many just one time? How many of you told your parents, no, I'm not going to do that a million times? Do we have some honest people here? We have two or three. We all have. And it's the same thing is true that a million times over, God has asked us to do things, and we have not done it. And we have not done it. From, and I'm not even talking about as an adult now. I'm talking about just as a child. There are many things that God asks us to do, and we have not done it. Okay, you want an example? Some of you think, well, I was a child. I, I, I didn't rebel against God. What is one of the things, we're trying to teach our kids this, what's one of the, the most important statements in the Bible for children? It's to do what? Obey their parents. So when you don't obey your parents, you're doing what? Disobeying God. Unless your parents are crazy, and then that's another issue, but, which God will take into account. But just as an example, that, that's one of the things that as children, even as children that we're supposed to do is to obey our parents. So a lot of our world is that we'll be okay with God. Our world says, hey, you don't really need to worry about God because, you know, God, I mean, if he exists, it's going to be okay. We can work it out with God later. But the Bible is very clear that that's not an option in God's eyes. Who gets to decide? Do we get to decide? No, we don't get to decide. God gets to decide. God gets to decide. And so God has already decided, look, I made an easy hoopless way, no standing in line, way for you to be right with me. And all you have to do is believe in my son. But if you go your whole life and you worship the God of partying and you go down to the temple and drink your six pack and enjoy yourself, and then you stand before God, then you're in a line, but it's the wrong kind of line. It's a different line, the line you don't want to be in. The line that says, you know, what's in that, in that movie, right? It says, please take a ticket, and it says, now serving one, and the ticket you take is like two billion or something, you know? That's the kind of line, the bad line you don't want to be in. So a lie of our world is that we'll be okay with God. This is not something that's necessarily true. Again, Paul says this, this includes you who are once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now what has he done? 
he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And in fact, the word there in the original language is not just reconciled, but he's totally reconciled. You're totally right with God now. You're not partially right. You're not on your way to being right. You're not a little bit right. You are totally right with God. You are cool with him. You are down with him. You are with God. Why? Because of what we've done? No. It is not because of your faith that makes you right with God. Can I say that again? It is not because of your faith that makes you right with God. It is because of God's grace extended to you by your faith that makes you right with God. Without God's sacrifice of Jesus, you could have all the faith in the world and it would not set you right with God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, we misquote that all the time because we say it's faith that you're saved. No, it's by it's grace that you are made right with God through faith so that none of us can boast. It's not a boasting in faith, it's a boasting in God's grace. That's where the boast is. We don't make it about ourselves, it is about what God has done. So Jesus set things totally right. Does that mean I can go and kill somebody and be right with God if I come to him and ask for forgiveness? Yes, that's what it means. Does it mean that I can abuse someone, I can steal from someone, I can hurt someone and be made right with God? Yes, that's what it means. That kind of stinks, doesn't it? Because all of us, we're nice people. And we see somebody who's on death row who has a conversion to God, and we're like, we shouldn't let them into heaven. But you know what's wrong with that, that thought? Everybody know what's wrong with that thought? What's wrong with that thought? When we, say, when we see someone on death row who killed a bunch of people, and they say, oh, I believe in Jesus now, and if the state wants to kill me, there's a lady in Texas that happened about you know, 12 years ago too, if the state wants to kill me, that's their choice. I believe in Jesus now. I know where I'm going to go when I die but yet they brutally murdered several people. And we say, oh man, I can't, you know, I can't, you know, I never did anything like that. You know what we're doing at that point? We're lying to ourselves. You know who we are there? We're the prodigal son. Wait, didn't the prodigal son go off and, and party like crazy and, then, and ruin the, take his inheritance and waste it and wallow around like a pig and then come back home? Well, Yes. But there's two prodigal sons in that story, isn't there? Because the other prodigal son is what? The older son who never did anything wrong and thinks that they're just okay and they don't need anything. I'm just okay. I don't need anything. Why are you giving, wasting all this time on this fool? Look at me. I'm a nice person. I've done everything okay. So the fallacy, the mistake that we make is when we believe that we are somehow better than the person who murdered a bunch of people in the eyes of God. Now, that's hard if you've met someone who has, been, who has been a victim of murder, for example, in their family. Or if you know someone who has been to war or been a victim of incredible violence. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus sets everyone totally right because everyone is wrong by God from the beginning. And some of us stay wrong with God for a long period of time. Now, why God makes everybody equal, you could take that up with him. But the truth is, is that we all have so many flaws and mistakes in our lives that there is really no way for us to correct it outside of the sacrifice of God and what Jesus did. The result is that we are completely blameless. This is the really cool thing. What happens? You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Now he's reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result... 
He has brought you into his own presence to be with, stand alongside him. Actually, this is in the original language, to stand by him, shoulder to shoulder, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Here's the thing. What the Bible is visualizing here is that you like to say, meaning people in our world like to say, I'm okay. I'm kind of gray. I'm kind of just in the middle. The Bible says that we are as black as night. We are as dark in our souls as anything that we could imagine. But that when we are transformed by what God has done, we are made completely clear, completely white, completely light in all ways. Here's the cool thing. Every other religion and philosophy, especially the ones at Colossae, you did what? Well, you weren't over here. You were kind of somewhere here. And then you get in this line, and you go here, and you sacrifice this animal and go here. And, oh, Dionysius is having a party at his temple, so we'll go drinking here. And then we get here, and then we get here, and this is where we end up, somewhere in this. So we've done this. This is our religious ritualistic walk right here. But God says, no, that you started out here, opposed to me, but because of what Christ has done, you literally and I wish I was taller, could go all the way over here completely blameless. That you go from the dark of night of the soul to completely flooded by light. Completely blameless in every way. There's no more blame. There's no more guilt. There's no con- more condemnation. There's no more issues. There's no more struggles. There's no more anything. Now, we still have struggles in this life because we live in a broken world. But as far as your relationship with God, you are then set. Oh, but that word set, that becomes a problem, doesn't it? Because here's the thing. And now it's your job to stay right. Paul says this. He says, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. What was happening in Colossae? Why did Paul write this letter? Here's the sentence that explains why Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter because a lot of people in Colossae were doing what? Jesus on Monday? Zeus on Tuesday, household gods on Wednesday, party at Dionysius' temple on Friday, maybe even do a little bit of Torah reading in the synagogue on Saturday. Hey, why not? We're just going to go get our fill. You know, if we go and worship every different God every day of the week, maybe we'll get more blessings, right? I mean, if I go to church on Sunday and worship Jesus, then on Monday I worship Buddha, I'm going to get double the blessing. This is going to happen, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Paul says here, it's our job to stay right. Now, this is really important because Paul uses a conditional phrase here. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. I am going to give all of you a million dollars. If, if you whatever. What's that called? Condition. Conditional. It's conditional. I'm going to give you a million dollars if, if. You know when you used to get in the publish, I mean a long time ago they used to mail those big packages, the publisher's clearinghouse thing, and it said 50 million dollars you're going to win if your number is picked, and if you buy X number of magazines, and if you do this, that, and the other. It's if. It's conditional. Paul says here that It is conditional 
upon our staying faithful to God. Now, some of you, here's the problem. Some of you were raised in a church where we say, once save, always save, right? Where, you know, if you become a believer, you're always a believer. Is that true? It is, but let me warn you, because that's not an anthem for you to do whatever you want to. Instead, what Paul's saying here is this. By the way, somebody wrote this. I thought it was really good. Continuance is the test. If it is true that saints, meaning believers, will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that saints must persevere to the end. What's Paul saying here? Paul actually says that you will be blameless before God if you continue to stay in your faith because you will continue to stay in your faith. That's what it actually says in the original language. What Paul is saying here is that for you to stand blameless before God, you must continue in your faith. And by the way, if you're a believer, you will continue in your faith. So he's not saying that you're, it's something you can lose, but he's just saying you got to do it, that there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that it's you got to fulfill your end of the bargain. Now, here's part of the problem, because there are a lot of people who come to church on Sunday and say, oh, I got Jesus now, so I'm good, I'm set. But are they set? What's about all this lukewarm stuff? Remember the lukewarm stuff we talked about last year? This is exactly where lukewarm believers fit into this category. Because for a person to be a believer in Christ and to be made right with Christ, they will do what? They will persevere until the end. They'll make it. They'll stay faithful. They'll stay connected to God. But then you have those people who come and they make a decision. They stay for a couple months at church and then you never see them again. What about those people? Well, they're not persevering to the end. And that's the reason why we must be willing to make it to the end. That's the reason why we must be willing to go from A to Z, not A to B. These truths of God are universal. I'm going to end here because this is a really cool thing. As we're building this foundation, here's what Paul says. Paul says this, he says, listen, when God sent Jesus to come and die on the cross, that his, let me just, actually, let me just read it. He said, This includes you who were once separated. Now he has reconciled you to himself through death of the body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. You are holy and blameless. Stand before him with a single thought. But you must continue to believe the truth. Stand forth. Don't drift away from the assurance you receive. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed to do this. Now, there's something missing here in the English. And what Paul is emphasizing over and over again in this passage is that the good news of God, the work of Jesus Christ, is universal. It's to the whole world. Why does, God, why, does Paul emphasize, why does God inspire Paul to emphasize this? Well, one of the big issues was is that every single area had its own God. Every single area of the city, every single area of our world at that point in time, they had their own national God. By the way, it's the same thing. Most people in most parts of the world, if you're born into a certain segment of society, you already have your God picked out for you, which is why a lot of, a lot of folks from other countries struggle because they think America is a Christian nation. So they think that everyone in America is just automatically Christian. And they can't understand the fact that we are not necessarily all Christians, and in fact, very few of us really probably are Christians. But if you're born in, I'll just pick on Saudi Arabia, if you're born in Saudi Arabia, you are what? You are Muslim. That's what you are. Why? Because you're born in Saudi Arabia. That's who you are. You're a Muslim. And... The thing is, is that Paul wants people to understand that the gospel of Christ is universal. 
that it's not something that is only for a few people, only for the Jews, only for the Gentiles, only for this, only for that, only for this side of town, only for that side of town, but is available to everyone. Now, one of the things that people did to attack the church early on was to say what? Was to say, well, the gospel, you know, it's only for certain people. It's only for the select few. It's only for those with knowledge or understanding. And that's simply not true, which is why Paul emphasized over and over again, the foundation is big enough for every single person. That when Christ died, he died for the small, he died for the big. He died for the rich, he died for the poor. He died for the entire world. Don't let anyone even in the church today, because some people in the church today will tell you that Christ only died for certain people. It's not true. Christ died for everyone, and everyone who is willing to accept Christ will have a blameless life afterwards, as long as they do what? They stay in the faith. So here's the thing. It's like this. We did what? Paul decided, hey, Colossians, I'm going to write you a letter because I want you to grow in your faith. God inspired me to write a letter. So I'm going to clear the ground. You're a Christian. Everyone's a Christian now, okay? So we're all Christians. We're all in the same place. We cleared the ground. Let's get the plans out. The plan is now that you're a believer, God wants you to grow and glorify him. That's the plan. So what we're going to do is we're going to start building the foundation. We're going to make the form work, which is what? God is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one that we're going to believe in. This is the parameters. This is the form work for what we're going to build. Jesus is our God. He is God in flesh. And then what? We're going to pour the concrete because what we're going to build our whole house on is that work of Jesus, that Jesus as God came and died on the cross for our sins, that if we simply believe in that, that we will be blameless throughout our life. And the form that Christ is God and the concrete that Christ, his person, the form, and his work, the concrete, this is who, what makes us able to glorify God. This is the basis for our lives as a believer. This is our foundation. That's what Paul's saying here. That's it. It's as simple as that. Let's pray.